Well, hello and welcome to church. It's so good to be here with you guys today. And uh, man, I'm excited about what we have in store for this service. But before we get into it, two big announcements. Number one, Christmas Eve. What? This Thursday? Time flies. Services are at 4.30, 5.30, and 6.30. You're definitely going to want to be here. I think Christmas Eve will probably be our greatest service of the whole year this year, especially because we couldn't celebrate Easter together. So um, you're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be really, really good. I think the message is going to be good. At least I hope it will, um, but we'll see about that. But uh, the service itself is going to be creative and awesome. It'll be fast so that you'll be able to have your other celebrations as well. Um, but we're going to do the candlelight thing. We have your special COVID-safe candle snuffers so that you don't have to blow on your candles. It's going to be awesome. So you're going to want to be here for that. Christmas Eve at uh, both Hebron and Wheatfield, 4.30, 5.30, and 6.30. So uh, please plan on that. Also, big, big, big announcement. This matters for everybody. Um, we're going to have new service times in 2021. So January 3rd um, is the first time that we'll change our service times. But at Hebron, it'll be 9 and 10.30. And uh, your uh, 9.45 service there has been packed. 1115, a little bit more space. So we thought, let's split that. Let's move those back and change that for you guys. Now, uh, DeMont Wheatfield service times are changing too. And before I show these to you, there's a lot of thought that has gone into this. I know everybody's going to be like, why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you do that? And I know it's different. We're experimenting. And maybe it'll be like the Hindenburg, you know, go down in flames and be terrible. But we'll see. So 8, 9, 20, 10, 40, and 6 p.m. And the reason why we want to do this is, you know, you still got your early morning people who are like, I farm and I wake up at 3 a.m. every day. And that's great. That's for you. And then the 9.20 is like, we can sleep in, but have breakfast and still get our kids there. And 10.40 is earlier than 11.15. So hopefully that'll work out. And if it doesn't, you know, we'll change it. But anyway, I hope that works. I'm really excited. I think that that's going to be better. Online, your times will shift to these times right here as well. And then Jill, you'll still meet at the exact same time that you have been. We love you. And uh, we're glad to be here with you. Now, um, we are in the third week of our Christmas series. And uh, as you know, I I don't just like making Christmas solely focusing on the birth narrative of Jesus. And the reason why is because the original reason Matthew, Luke, and John included the birth narrative of Jesus wasn't just to study it. It was to give evidence so that we could believe, and by believing, we could find life in his name. And so I think Christmas is a special time to look at evidence surrounding Jesus, and it's all about finding life in his name. And if you remember in week one, we talked about the pagan history of the Christmas celebration and how the Christmas holiday is a relatively new thing to be celebrated, especially in America. It didn't start getting celebrated into the middle 1850s. And uh, then last week, if you recall, we talked about the tension at the table. And uh, we learned about progressive Christianity last week. And what we learned was there are two different religions that both go by the title Christian. And uh, there's a lot of confusion because they claim to be the same thing, but they're different. And uh, one, traditional historic Christianity believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only hope of the world, and that we must turn to him in order to receive forgiveness for our sin. Um, then the other one is progressive Christianity, which believes that we're not necessarily born sinful. Jesus is a great instructor. Um, who lived a life worth learning from and ultimately loves us and there is universal reconciliation at the end of this life. And the tension at the table comes because these religions have different goals and different meanings, but the same name. And traditional Christianity wants us to deal with our sinful nature and be reformed in the image of Christ. Progressive Christianity wants us to indulge our true desires and believes that uh, the nature of Christianity must change with the times. And I hope it gave you clarity and it helped you understand the tension that so many of us 
us feel with our families. And no matter what religion you follow, whether it's atheism or traditional Christianity, or progressive Christianity, or you're agnostic, um, I just want you to know I'm really glad you're here. And this is a place where no one's perfect and everyone's welcome. And uh, this week, what I'd like to do is talk about how to cut through the tension at your Christmas dinner table. And uh, I think this is a total part two message from last week. If you're watching online and you haven't seen last week's message, I'd encourage you to go back and watch it. I think that would really help you. And then also, this is going to be one of those practical take notes type of messages. And you all have those note sheets on your seats. This is one where it's like, I'm going to give you practical, tangible steps that will help you cut through the tension at your Christmas dinners. You're probably going to want to take notes. It would be helpful. This sermon is going to be that. So anyway, I think it's interesting how many of us, um, we love our family. We tolerate our family, but we don't really like our extended family. You know what I mean? Like you're at that place. And it's interesting because all the tension you felt as brothers and sisters when you were kids is still there. It's just now you don't live together to resolve it. You just kind of let it float in the air. And I think what happens for us is we get together. We know there's tension there. Because of last week, we now know why there's tension there. We don't really know how to cut through it. So basically what we do is we get together for Christmas and you like kind of knock on the door with dread and you open the door and it's like, we're here, you know, honey, don't, don't say anything bad. Like, please don't mess up. And, and pretty much the only safe area of conversation is the chronology of the year, like the time, like, oh my goodness, can you believe that another year has passed, right? And that's like safe. You know, after we got together last year, what happened for us is we had springtime. You might've had that too, you know, and then we celebrated Easter. Whoops, didn't mean to be controversial there. We celebrated a holiday that's meaningful to us. Then we had summertime, and then wouldn't you know it, fall came, and now we're back here this Christmas. How about you? Same thing? Wow, that's crazy. And then the one safe thing you could talk about, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the non-controversial area that everybody can talk about is medical issues. You know what I mean? It's like medical, oh man, those hemorrhoids sound terrible. You know, down, down, down to that burning ring of fire. (laughs) Yeah, well, I know what Santa might get you, some preparation H maybe, huh? We'll see about that, right? And then, and then you talk about the food. You know what I mean? You talk about the food. Wow, you did it again. Another ham. How did you do it? You went to Tyson's. That's great. That's good. Ham's, uh, ham's ham, right? And then you tell a few stories. And the problem with the Christmas stories is you can only tell nostalgic stories that have sort of been approved by being told 20 plus times. But you've heard the story 20 plus times, you know? So you just kind of tolerate and you listen and you insert laughter at the correct moment like, is that correct? Did I do that, honey? See, I'm engaged, right? Whatever. And then you reach this place where you're all sitting around the table and it's like, tink, tink, tink. You know what I'm talking about? There's 17 of you around the table and it's like, don't say anything controversial. We've made it to dessert and nobody has fought. Just tink, tink, tink. And this is where gifts are really the savior of Christmas. You know what I mean? It's like, thank God for the commercialization of Christmas because we actually have something that we can do. You know what I mean? Like we're doing it together and we're not fighting. And the best part about gifts is it means you're almost done. You know what I mean? You open the gifts and you're gone, right? So you open the gifts and it's like, oh, did you include a gift receipt with that? Oh, you didn't. That's fine. I'll just keep this forever in my trunk until I go to the Jasper County Junction, which is everybody's guilt-free dumpster. You know what I mean? Like that's where you go and you just put it there. And I'm sorry for the Minnesota accents, but you got to understand my Christmases are in Minnesota. But anyway, you get in the car as soon as possible, wondering how you got here to this place. And you know what's interesting too, and I don't know if a lot of you relate to this, but I have left Christmas celebrations with my extended family feeling lonely. 
And I know that that sounds strange. It's like they shouldn't be lonely, but that's how you feel. You know, you're there with everybody, but it's like you can't actually be yourself. You know what I mean? You can't actually connect with anyone. You spend all this time together, but like the whole thing was, was tension filled. Last week, we talked about what made the tension, but this week, I want to show you how Jesus cuts through the tension. Because he lived in an era that was probably equally as polarized, if not more so, than America is today. And every family or group has a few people that are sort of like the glue of the whole thing. You know, they sort of hold it together, and they're the ones that you really gather to see. They come in the door, and they're the glue of the family, and, you know, everybody, like, tolerates each other, but they're all, like, eyeing, like, can I get in there and talk to Grandma right now because so-and-so's talking with her? And finally, you get to, and, hi, Grandma, I'm here. I showed up. Don't write me out of the will. It's so good to see you, whatever, right? And uh, as we come into Christmas and dinner with our families, I don't just want you to see why there's tension. I want you to see how Jesus cut through it. I want you to be equipped through his example on how you can cut through the tension at your table and have the most wonderful Christmas ever. And Jesus actually has a lot to say about cutting through tension at the table. He attended a lot of dinner parties throughout his ministry on earth. Many of his most famous conversations took place over dinner, you know, the Last Supper and the paintings like it. And uh, there's a lot to learn here. So we're not just talking about how to cut through the tension. We're talking about how to cut through the tension like Jesus. And uh, I want to zoom in today on a passage from the book of Luke, the, the biography of Jesus's life called Luke. It's written by a dude named Luke. And uh, chapter seven and verse 36 is where we're gonna start. We're gonna go through it verse by verse. And uh, this story takes place at the height of Jesus's early fame, okay? And uh, he has tens of thousands of people that have been sort of following him around. He's kind of a, kind of a big deal at this point. Everybody loves him. And uh, he's doing all the like late night talk show tours and hosting people at his house. He's just, he's a big deal, he's a big deal. He doesn't have a house, but he's being hosted at houses. And uh, in Luke 7 and verse 36, it says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his house and sat down to eat. And you got to understand that um, in that day and age, going to a Pharisee's house, which was one of the leaders of the community, was sort of like going to the late show with Letterman, Kimmel, Colbert, or my favorite, who is now retired, Jay Leno, right? And uh, you go there and you'd have dinner and they sort of interview you. And if you actually go to Israel and you see the excavations of some of these, um, you know, Galilean villages, uh, you'll see that they have usually one or two large houses in the center of the community that belong to these Pharisees. And they have these like gregariously large, like ridiculously large dining rooms. It's like, why would the dining room be so large? Well, the reason was because they would host hundreds of people in the room. And they weren't there to eat. They were there to watch the Pharisee host the guest teacher eat. And they would listen to the conversation. And uh, they would sort of learn from that, right? So Jesus's conversation was being watched by hundreds of people. Jesus shows up there on his Lamborghini donkey, you know, like... He pulls up with his entourage, his 12 disciples all get off, they come into the house, and Simon like hosts him, you know, come on in, and the whole crowd's waiting, you know, the guys at the door letting people in, you know, letting them see their, their stone tablet ID, just kidding, they didn't have that, but anyway. You got to understand too, their society was, was based off of like the religion was the, the center of their society. It was like the NFL, okay? Uh, religious teachers were their NFL stars. I know that that sounds tr strange, but that's literally what it was. And Jesus coming to this town was like um, having Tom Brady in his third year in the NFL come in. You know, I mean, he came out of nowhere, draft pick number 199, and he's the second greatest of all time now after Peyton Manning, of course. And um, also critical was how they were sitting. Uh, when, when we visit family in Japan, uh, one of the interesting things is um, they don't really have chairs there. You just sit on the floor, which drives me nuts because I am half Japanese. I definitely inherited a Japanese rear end, and there's just not a lot of padding back there. You know what I mean? So you're sitting on the floor the whole time, and it's like, why? This doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? It's just very uncomfortable. But that's what we do when we go to Japan. And uh, Jesus in that day and age, too, they would sit on the floor, except they would recline. You know what I mean? They'd lay down. 
And you've all seen the paintings of the ladies, you know, like this, eating the grapes in the Greco-Roman world of antiquity. That's Jesus at the table. He's sitting there. He's talking like this, right? So anyway, lots of significance with that. When you read the Bible and understand they're eating, um, typically that's what they're doing, sitting on the floor. They're having this conversation, lavish dinner, hundreds of people all around them watching, plus thousands outside of Simon's home who couldn't get in, who are also listening and passing on tidbits from the conversation. And uh, they have this conversation in verse 37. It says, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there. And I love that everybody who's reading this knows who she is. You know what I mean? It's not that big of a town, but Luke is trying to not gossip. So he a certain immoral woman. You know what I mean? But they know. Uh, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. There's a lot of significance theologically with this alabaster jar that I'm not going to go into today because I want to move past it. But um, then she knelt down behind him at his feet, uh, weeping. And her tears fell on his feet, and then she wiped them off with her hair, and then she kept oh, kissing his feet and um, putting perfume on them. And this is super awkward. Like, don't, don't think of anything other than the fact that this is super awkward. Like, have you ever been out to dinner, and, and there's some lady next to you who is crying? That is strange. You know what I mean? You're trying to have a conversation like, oh, hey, honey, how was your day? Oh, it was good. You know, things were good. And the kids were so. And you're like, okay, all right. So just kind of soldier on. Now, um, it says that she's crying, but notice she's not just crying in public. She's crying to the extent that she's literally wetting his feet with her tears. Now, I have made my wife cry many times, kind of pro at it, one of the best in the world. But um, at tear production, it just, I mean, to be at the level that she's wetting his feet with her tears, she's hovering over them, and she's, you know, messed up. Like, she's sobbing for sure weeping at his feet in front of a live audience. And imagine being on Leno, like having this happen. Like Leno's trying to interview Jesus, you know, so tell me about this story. Tell me about this movie you made, whatever. And Jesus is trying to talk, you know, and it's just what's happening. It's what's happening right here. Verse 39, it says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. That she is a sinner, right? And, um, I don't like that line very much, but fortunately, neither does Jesus. And uh, Jesus is about to take a moment to condemn this behavior, and I would like to as well. I love that Jesus tells us we don't need to be defined by our sinful past mistakes. We're defined by his grace and his love for us when we choose to receive it. When, he, when we say no one is perfect and everyone is welcome here at this church, I want to make it clear we do it because Jesus did it. Like, this is a practice of Jesus. We might not agree with something that someone does, and you might um, belong to a different religion, like the religion of atheism or the religion of progressive Christianity. You might have a sinful past that extends up to moments before you got into the church, maybe a road rage incident on the bridge, whatever. But um, this man's reaction, the idea that you should not associate with someone or not welcome someone into church because you disagree with them is consistently condemned by Jesus. And it doesn't mean that we can't disagree. It doesn't mean we can't call people to repent. It doesn't mean that we can't draw lines about what we believe and why we believe it, but the idea that we should kick someone out of church because of mistakes they've made in their past is absolutely condemned by Jesus. I want to make that clear. Verse 40, it says, then Jesus answered his thoughts. Now, that's kind of cool about Jesus. It's a big deal. You know, just think about that. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Now, the implication at this point 
is that Simon has been motor mouthing. And if you read between the lines, okay, Simon's been talking about himself and look at me, all I do is win no matter what. I'm kind of a big deal. Check out this house. I'm the leader of this community. I'm the best Christian there is. That's all there is to it. That's what Simon's been doing. Finally, Jesus cuts in. He said, look, Simon, I've been listening to you all night. I want to say something. Let me say something. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus told him this story. And it's a big story. It's a big deal. It's a short story, big deal. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces of silver to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And it's a mic drop moment. I'm not going to do it because the mic is worth more than my car. But anyway, which isn't very much, but uh, anyway... Um, it's a big deal. I mean, the whole crowd goes wild at this point. This is like, oh, did you hear what Jesus did? Because the implication here, not only does he show Simon that he knows this is a sinful woman, a very sinful woman, but then he also calls Simon out on his sin, and then he flips the script and seems to imply that this woman loves God more than Simon does, who has spent the whole night bragging about how much he loves God. I mean, it's kind of an incredible and moving story that is very convicting and told so well that it's almost completely unassailable. Now, ultimately, Jesus accomplishes a lot at this dinner. He teaches everyone, including the hosts, an awesome lesson. He gives people a new perspective on one another. All in all, it's like a, it's like a really good dinner. And this was as tension-filled a dinner as you could imagine. Like Simon invited Jesus into his house, not to bless Jesus or learn about Jesus. He invited him to like steal his fame and bolster his own life. And then this woman comes in is literally weeping at Jesus' feet, kissing his feet, and putting perfume on them, wiping them with her hair. I mean, it's awkward. It's, you ever been in one of those situations where you're like, Jesus, please send a comment from the sky to kill us all because I can't live in this moment one second longer? That's the level of awkward this is. You know what I mean? Where you just want to run away because it's like, God, if I had a heart attack right now and I died, that would be a better alternative than to me standing here and enduring this awkwardness. That's the level of awkward this is. And yet somehow Jesus cuts through the tension completely. And he turns it into this real meaningful connection. He turns it all around. It ends up, everybody leaves deep in thought, committed to being better, to seeing more in one another, to loving one another. How did he do it? I want that for your Christmas. And I want that for my Christmas. I want to learn from what Jesus just did right here because it is truly remarkable. I mean, it's an incredible story. And if we could have a Christmas dinner that turns out like this one does, we're going to be doing okay. And uh, so I've got... Three thoughts, three thoughts on how Jesus ran his dinner table, okay? Three thoughts on how Jesus had these good conversations, three thoughts on how Jesus cuts through the tension, and it's actually a three-point message, but my first point has three sub-points, and I also have two closing points. So anyway, that's what it is, typical Pastor John message, but uh, the first point is really simple. If you want to cut through the tension, you got to know people. you got to know the people that you are eating with. And I know that that sounds really simple, but I think so much of the time we just focus on ourselves. You know what I mean? We just think about how does this make me feel? How do I feel about what they're saying? How do I feel today? Like, what do I want? Like, it's just a really me-centered thing. And I think when you actually take a moment, instead of thinking of yourself, to actually know the people at the table, it's really helpful. First sub-point here, know their background. You know, I have um, had an uncle who was kind of a just not nice guy. 
You know, every Christmas we'd get together and he was really condescending and sarcastic. He'd always get a little tipsy and he'd start making fun of his daughters and his wife and he'd just make it a really tension-filled time. And I remember not liking him. I remember always thinking like, this guy is the worst. He always comes and it's just, I hate having him there. And he was atheist. He was really condescending towards our family's religion, really discriminatory about it. Like it just, it was a bad experience. And he'd make these inappropriate jokes that made everybody feel awkward. And I just, I really didn't like him didn't like him. He was condescending and mean. I remember one Christmas, I was about 12 years old, and before we went through the door of my grandparents' condo, um, I just remember thinking, I wonder how he's feeling. And I started thinking about his background. I mean, I thought, well, his wife and daughters definitely don't like him. That's evident every time we get together. He probably doesn't have any friends or enduring relationships because what you sow is what you reap. Everyone is probably sarcastic and cruel back to him because he is sarcastic and cruel to everyone in his life. And I thought, well, he has no hope for eternity because he believes there is no God. This life is all there is, which is made worse by the fact that this life for him is miserable and disappointing. And I remember just really taking a moment to visualize his background. And all at once, it changed everything. Because suddenly, instead of being angry at him, I had deep compassion for him. Because I took a moment just to think of the background of his life, what he was coming from into the celebration. It was just helpful. Next thing I think Jesus does is he discerns people's beliefs. This is relatively easy. Jesus always did this at the tables that he was at. I think he did it supernaturally, but it's really not that hard. Luke 6, 43 tells us we can know a person's beliefs by looking at the fruit of their life. If they generally are angry and unforgiving and mistrusting and they always see themselves as a victim and they're always offended all the time by everyone and they feel like everyone's out to get them, it's a pretty general indicator of the condition of their heart. It doesn't take rocket science to discern where someone's at. For me at dinner, with my family or friends, I often just mentally will go around the table and ask myself this question. Based on what I know about Jesus and what I know about them, will we spend eternity together? I always find this to be a really sobering thought because a lot of times you just fly over it. You just want to not think about that question, right? And then you get to the the deathbed moment and it's like, oh, I wish I would have done more. I wish I would have said more. And, you know, I just find it really helpful when I'm sitting at the Christmas dinner table. I just go around and I look at each person. I just think in my heart, what is their background like? And based on what I know of Jesus and what I know of them, are we going to spend eternity together? I love what Peter says about God's heart in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. It says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. People are saying, Peter, why isn't Jesus coming back yet? Like, why is he making us wait? He goes, no, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. I want that to be our heart. Do we actually care about people's eternal destiny? Do we care about where they're going after this life? Do we actually think about it? It's a big deal for us. I love this passage because it shows us God's heart. He is loving, kind, and compassionate. After thinking about people's background and empathizing with their pain, all of a sudden I have a real passion to take some steps with them, which is the next part of this process. When you know people, you know their background, you discern their beliefs, and then you set a goal. How can I love them better by pointing them to Jesus? And I think that's what makes friendships really meaningful, by the way. You know what's interesting to me is you can have a friendship with somebody for years and years and years. You know, you do everything together, you do life together, you laugh together. I find that one meaningful connection where you're seen and you understand the other people and you connect with them and then they challenge you to change and grow. Those are the most meaningful friendships of my life. And looking back, I mean, I can remember like five conversations with people that I really haven't stayed in touch with, that really haven't played like a huge enduring role in my life. And yet they're some of the most meaningful friendships I've ever had. Why? Because they actually connected and challenged and understood and knew and discerned my beliefs and challenged me. 
I think this is such a big deal, but you can't challenge somebody without knowing their background and discerning their beliefs. You figure out what is the logical next step for somebody. Most people either never challenge or they challenge way too much. And you have people like that in your life. Kristen, my wife, has been on several dates where people have asked her to marry them in the first date. You know what I mean? And that's like, okay, that's too much. That's too much challenge. I think a lot of times as Christians, we think, oh, I got to go for the whole enchilada right now. Lose yourself in the music, the moment, one shot, one lifetime, got to do it, right? And that's like, whoa, slow down. Think of like a tangible, tangible goal. You know, my first date with Kristen, I was like, I'm just going for a second date. You know what I mean? Like that's a tangible step for me. And I think realistically, when I'm with people far from God at my dinner table, where really, I think, man, what is one step? I want to remove a bias that this person has against Jesus or Christians that would keep them from following him, right? That's what I think. What's one bias we can, what's one little step? What's one little thing that we can do? I find it really helpful. And this first process right here, know the people, these three steps, these sub steps right here, this can be done in an instant. Like this is done, you walk in, you just calculate with each person you're talking with and you think, okay, I wanna do this. I wanna get my heart in the right spot. I wanna discern their beliefs. I wanna set a goal. Next step is a big one is ask questions because you care. Jesus was such a question asker. I love what he says to Simon. He says, who do you suppose left him more after that? He asks this question. Why would Jesus do that? I mean, when you read the Bible, it's amazing to see how many questions Jesus asks. He's such a question asker. He doesn't just ask random questions. He asks leading questions that bring people to his goal. But you'd think because he's God and, you know, he knows everything, he wouldn't need to ask questions. But he does it all the time. And it's because he's gaining knowledge about, or it's not because he's gaining knowledge about people, it's about showing people that you love and respect them and consider them worth knowing. I would just ask you in your conversations with people, what percent of the time do you spend talking about yourself? And what percent of the time are you actually showing people you love them by asking questions and listening? Think about it. The people that you like the most in life, they're the ones that ask questions. I used to take girls out before I met Kristen. And, uh, you know, I had this whole list of things that I needed to know before I would take a girl on a second date, right? So I'd always have a list of like 10 questions in my mind. Like, this is how I decide if I want to go on a second date, these are all the things I got to ask. And I remember a couple dates in particular. Um, I only was able to ask one or maybe two questions. And these ladies would proceed to motor mouth for like the next three hours. And I just sit there thinking like, I could have brought a wacky inflatable flailing arms man that they could have talked to. And that would have been just as good. Cause I don't need to say anything. You know what I mean? Like all I need is a mirror for them to look at and talk to themselves. Why am I even here? Like, what's the point, you know? And then afterwards, you get the text message. I found such a connection with you. That was the most amazing day. Let's go on. It's like, I could be a serial killer. Like, you don't know anything about me. You know what I mean? Like, you literally don't. I, I would question if you even know my name. You know what I mean? Like, I just sat here. What was, what was the point? But they felt so close. Why? Because we listened, right? And listening is a great way to earn the right to speak into someone's life. Do you know how remarkable it is that Jesus asks people questions to think that our creator, the God of the universe, who literally knows a number of hairs on her head, asks us questions? It's remarkable. But he did it because he understood that this was a way to show people you care. He didn't ask a bunch of questions just to, to keep the conversation alive. He did it because he genuinely loved people, because he studied their background, because he understood their beliefs, and he had a goal that he was leading them to. I think it's super instructive for us when we want to cut through the tension at the table, regardless of your beliefs. Regardless of what you're trying to lead people to, I think for so many of us, we just sort of gather for Christmas with no purpose, no goal. We sort of wander around and just try to stay out of trouble and we leave. And of course, it's not going to feel fulfilling. We didn't get anywhere. Ask a family member that you want to reach and connect with this Christmas some questions. Get to know them. Listen to them talk about their lives. This sounds super simple, but how many of us actually do it? Jesus did it and it worked. Third thing, be humble. Be humble. This one is so simple. <clears throat> 
Jesus is such a humble man. I mean, he gets away with so much in the Bible. When you read about all of these different traditions and rituals that he's turning on their head, it's like, how does he do it? How does he just go in there and say it? I think it's because he dignifies people, he knows people, and he earns the right to do it through his humility. And I struggle with this a lot. I know this might come as a surprise to you, but it turns out that I struggle with saying things humbly. And when I hear someone say something wrong at a dinner, what I want to do is say, well, actually, that's incorrect because blah, 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 things and reasons. And here's where you're wrong. And I want to say it boldly and clearly. And I will just tell you that if you want to earn friends and influence people, not the right way to do it. It's what I do, right? And I'm not saying stand down or be silent, but Jesus calls us to be humble in respectful tones. Honest question, if you're in a relationship with somebody, how many of your arguments have something to do with your tone of voice, right? I mean, for me, it's 100%. Like, I am right a lot of the time, but I mean, how is crazy? Your tone of voice, your tone of voice. I'm like, I'm gonna die if you mention that one more time. I'm so sorry. I, this is just my voice. You know what I mean? It just sounds like this. It sounds very angry and, and, and offensive, but really, I'm humble on the inside. You just can't see it because of my body language and the fact that I'm pointing a finger at your face. You know what I mean? Like, what's the big deal? I don't understand how that's not persuasive, you know? And we're sitting here with our family arguing. If you would just look at your you know, we're sitting here and explaining and like, of course we're not getting anywhere. Be humble. Be humble. You look at Jesus's ministry and his life. And I mean, he's the creator of the universe and he humbled himself to be born in an animal feeding trough surrounded by animals in the most humble circumstance imaginable. Obviously our God and King understands being humble. And I wonder if we do as well. I just feel like if we want to cut through the tension at the dinner table, especially with the atmosphere and the world that we live in in 2020, it's going to start with, with humbling ourselves. And once you've done all these things, you can finally go for the challenge when the time is right. And this is a big deal. Jesus saw the tension between Samuel, Simon and the sinful woman. And you know, I love that he spent a long time knowing their background listening to both of them talk, right? He listens to, to, to Simon talk about himself. You know, Simon, all I do is win and here's this plaque and I graduated from Hebrew University and, blah, 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 and all these things and check out my house, check out all my accomplishments and I'm the best. And he listens to Simon. Then he lets this sinful woman and he dignifies her and she's like the black sheep at your house. You have that family member that everybody like tries to avoid like, oh, here she comes. She's just a big train wreck. Not least, but you know, like, oh, here she comes. Just a big train wreck. And da, 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 da. Like, oh my goodness. Like just all the time, you know, and, and that person, everybody avoids. Jesus dignified her. And I love that. He didn't condemn her. He didn't throw her out. He just, he dignifies her and he lets her do her. And he doesn't act like it's weird. And after doing all the things that we talked about, Jesus cuts through the tension and he goes for the jugular and he tells this incredible story. And I love that Jesus didn't mind when the moment was right, cashing in all the chips that he'd earned from listening and asking questions. He tells a story and he convicts them, right? Not in a mean way, but he clearly acknowledges that this lady is a sinner. He clearly acknowledges that Simon is a sinner and he calls them to repentance and both are convicted and both are called to change. Now, Jesus is Jesus. He's obviously brilliant. But I think the real challenge for most of us is that we just ignore the attention or instead of cutting through it to the heart of the issue, we just complain about the tension. I still remember when a pastor cut through the tension for me. I still remember the night when he preached a sermon talking about, do you really believe that Jesus is God and our only hope for eternity? I remember being convicted by it. Do you believe that you're sinful? And then he said the words that really spoke to me. You've heard me say them today, but you know, they're not my words. I'm just ripping them off from another pastor. But he said, something doesn't come from nothing. He said, intelligent design doesn't come from no intelligence. 
He said the miracles and the corroborated eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are not random. What is your answer for that? And I'd heard lots of pastors say that before. But I heard this pastor. And what was different about his challenge was the ministry he had set up surrounding this. His volunteers and the team of people that had connected with me prior to that, I mean, they'd asked me questions. They knew me. They knew my background. They'd earned the right to speak into my life. They understood me. And what they did was they set the table for this pastor to when the time was right, cut to the heart of the issue and challenge me. And I became a Christian. Maybe that needs to be your story this Christmas. Jesus is real. We're not superstitious. We know he's the only way. I don't have enough faith to follow the religion of atheism or agnosticism. Like, I know, I can't deny the facts. Like, Christianity is this historic movement that happened, that happened. What is your answer for that? It was the whole process that Jesus outlined for us today. There was so much tension in my life. I didn't know what I wanted to believe. I lived in that tension for so long. I felt very unsure on the inside, but I acted very sure and arrogant on the outside. And one person cut through that tension for me by living like Jesus, by just being the Jesus that's represented in this story. I don't know where you're at this Christmas, but as you get ready to go to your Christmas celebration, your Christmas dinner, I want you to be the one who cuts through the tension. I don't want you to complain about it. I don't want you to pretend like it's not there. I just want to challenge you to think, how can I Help the people in my life be one step closer to this life-giving belief, to this life-giving hope. I think that's a big lesson for us today. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, what a great opportunity for us to tear down barriers instead of building them up. You be the one who sits with the black sheep of the family. You be the one who dignifies and listens. You be the one who actually gets real and honest. And you be the one who, after earning the right, challenges somebody to be better in life. Last week, I showed you the tension. And so many of you thought it was a, a great sermon because you, you saw the tension and you understood it. And that's great. But now looking at the life that Jesus lived, looking at the way that he treated people, I believe that he's calling us to be him to our family. Don't waste another Christmas with a pointless, meaningless gathering where we get around and, oh, it's fun, it's great, it's weird, it's awkward, I'm out, see you next year. Live for the gospel. Live for what matters. Live for eternity. We got our Christmas Eve services coming up, 4.30, 5.30, and 6.30. Bring some family to that. Say, hey, I want to have a conversation with you. I want to know you. I want to hear what you think about this. Come to church with me. Come experience the reason for the season with me. Be a part of this life. Be the one to show them the truth. I'm so grateful for all that Jesus is in my life. I'm so grateful for the fact that I have a purpose and dignity and hope in every moment of this life. But it all began with the people of God doing the work of God for the glory of God. And I just want to look at this church at all of our locations and challenge you to do that. At the jail, I want you to do it with your inmates. At Hebron, I want you to do it with the people around you. At Weefield and Demott, do it with the people around you online. Like if you're having Zoom Christmases, don't be afraid to have a meaningful conversation. Don't be afraid to earn the right to speak into people's life and at just the right time, cut through the tension. Make it, make it meaningful. I want this to be the greatest Christmas ever. As we close, I want to ask you to stand and uh, I'd like to pray for our church. Father God in heaven, I, I thank you for the example that you set for us. I thank you for loving us so much. You sent your one and only son to earth. You loved us that much. God, as we walk into 
this Christmas holiday. I pray that this would be the very best Christmas that we've ever had. After a crazy year, God, I just ask that you would bless our conversations. I ask that you would give us insight and wisdom and compassion for the people around our tables. I ask that we could have a deeper love for one another than we've ever had before. And I pray that we would see and create opportunities to lead people one step closer to a meaningful, life-changing relationship with you. I see things in the name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen and amen.